Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. everyone, welcome back to another episode of Talking Tudors. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger. Thank you so much for joining me today. Before we dive into this week's episode, I'd like to introduce you to a weekend at the Tudor Court, a two-day online event that's taking place on the weekend of the 21st and 22nd of October. Enjoy talks by seven leading Tudor history experts, all from the comfort of your home. Participants will have access to all content for a full month after the event ends, so there's plenty of time to catch up if you're unable to watch any of the lectures over the weekend. To learn more and register your place, please head to my website on thetudortrail.com or just Google a weekend at the Tudor Court. I do hope you'll consider joining me. As always, I'd also like to acknowledge and thank the generous listeners who continue to support Talking Tudors on Patreon and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does make a difference. If you love the podcast and you never miss an episode, I invite you to join the Talking Tudors Patreon family. Visit patreon.com slash talkingtudors for more information. Join the Talking Tudors patron family to instantly unlock access to exclusive posts, including audio releases and videos. Patrons are also eligible to attend additional monthly live talks and to enter patron-only monthly giveaways. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks, and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtudors.threadless.com. Now, on to today's episode. I'm thrilled to welcome Kathleen Wilson-Chevalier to the podcast to talk about Queen Claude of France. Kathleen is Art History Professor Emerita at the American University of Paris. Trained as a Fontainebleau specialist, she has published a catalogue on French Renaissance prints, edited books with Caroline Zamkolk, and written articles on French women of rank and their artistic patronage. Her most recent publications examine commissions associated with two Bourbon princesses, Jean de France and Louise de Bourbon Montpensier, but especially the piety and patronage of Queen Claude of France, tightly linked to those of her mother, Anne of Brittany, and her sister, Duchess Renée. She will be organising the King's and Queen's Conference Series number 13 with the Royal Studies Network, which will honour the fifth centenary of the death of Claude of France. Let's dive into our conversation. Welcome to Talking Tudors, Kathleen. How are you? Good morning. Good evening, evening. Natalie. (laughs) Um, I'm... Very well, thank you. Ready to talk about Claude de France. Oh, I'm so excited. This is the first episode I've done on Claude, so I'm, I'm really, really excited about it. But before we dive in and talk about this, this wonderful, fascinating woman, would you mind just introducing yourself to our listeners and just telling us a little bit about you and your background? 
Certainly. So um, I was actually born between lemon and avocado orchards in Santa Paula, California, so Southern California. And then on my junior year abroad, I came to France. I went back and I graduated from the University of California at Berkeley. And then I came back to France and I did my, my master's and my dissertation at the Sorbonne. And then after that, I got a position at the American University of Paris, where I taught for the rest of my career as an art historian. And I actually did my dissertation on the first guidebook to the castle of Fontainebleau. So I became very interested in Fontainebleau, Francis I. And then I went on to being interested in the women in the life of Francis I. And I was always triggered by some sort of an artistic project. The first was the chamber of the Duchess of Etampes at Fontainebleau. So I became interested in the Duchess of Etampes. Then I went on to the second queen of Francis, Eleanor of Austria, the Habsburg queen. And then I went back in time and I've actually looked at other women at the court, the niece of Louise de Savoie, Madeleine de de Savoie, a sister of Louis XI, um, always with an artistic project in mind. Um, And the sister of the constable of Bourbon in the age of Francis I, who's responsible for an extraordinary Saint-Chapelle with windows, stained glass windows, an extraordinary project. And then finally, I became interested in Claude and with Claude, her sister Renée. And they are my favorite protagonists, actually. Now, just one piece of information. Um, Claude uh, is an underdog of history. She's been... Um, virtually invisible to historians. And next year is the fifth centenary of her death. And we're going to, with the Royal Studies Network, organize the Royal Studies Network at the American University of Paris and a Loire Valley Castle. And we're going to dedicate it to Claude de France, who's finally going to get her due. Oh, that is absolutely wonderful news. I agree with you. There's just not enough information out there about her. So how about we start with her family and upbringing in case people are not very familiar with her? Absolutely. So I listened to your podcast with Leah Chang on Elizabeth I and Catherine de' Medici. And um, she states that both of them had troubled childhoods. She notes that similarity. Claude's was exactly the opposite. She had an extraordinarily smooth childhood where she had health problems. But other than that, she was she was taken care of entirely and well prepared to become queen. So she comes from a long dynasty of strong women. Her great-grandmother was Queen Regnant Eleanor of Navarre. Her grandmother, therefore, was the daughter of a Queen Regnant, um, Marguerite de Foix. She, as Duchess of Brittany, actually um, made it possible for Anne to become the Duchess of Brittany. She ensured female succession in Brittany, and she actually commissioned a book from Pierre Beau on the genealogy of dukes and duchesses in Brittany in order to prepare Anne. Then Anne is actually now, she's recognized as an extraordinary woman of state. That's, I take that from Michel Nassier, the historian. She's now an object of study and the the wonderful study of her correspondence, for example. And she was intent on preparing both of her daughters to become um, women of power. And I believe that she did that very, very well. 
And can we talk a little bit about Claude's education? Because I, I think that, you know, she was such an mm -hmm. educated and erudite woman, but this seems mm -hmm. to have just been overshadowed by other things. Right. Well, she was educated to be sincerely pious. Um, her piety was inflected by evangelical ideas. And she was also brought up with a notion of the humanism of Erasmus. And that too was very important at European courts in general, at the Tudor court and at the French Valois court as well. Okay, now um, we can begin to see her education with her amazing primer, which is in the, in the Cambridge um, Fitzwilliam Museum, made probably when she was about six or seven. And her mother already programs her in that to become a mediator for her people. And that is exactly what she and her sister, Renee, are going to do. Um, we can test her knowledge by looking at um, her Book of Hours, which is in the private Tenshirt collection today, in which you find mottos in both Latin and Greek. She didn't master those languages. Some of her children would, actually, um, but it's a sign of her interest in the humanistic field. We know about her governesses. The first was Jeanne de Polignac, Madame de Tournon. And to test the quality of the education of Madame de Tournon, I look at the fact that she also raised her son, François de Tournon, who became the Cardinal de Tournon, an important advisor to Francis I. Claude got an education from a woman who prepared a man for power. Her second um, governess after the death of Madame de Tournon was Gillette de Coetemont, Lady of Assigné. And she was actually, people don't know her very well today, but she was a Breton heiress. And she was the mother of Marie d'Assigné. And if you want to know who Marie d'Assigné is, go to the National Gallery in Scotland and look at Jean Clouet's portrait of her, a beautiful portrait of this, someone who became a lady-in-waiting, in fact, to Claude. We may talk about her just a little bit more later. Now, books show us to what extent Claude was and how she was prepared to become a woman of power. Her mother, around the time that she received her primer, probably, commissioned a life of famous women. And um, Claude, it was illustrated, and Claude as a child would have been able to look at exemplary women and actually think about whether they were good, bad, how they had functioned to form her mind, in fact. This she could have done under her mother's collection of Christine de Pizon's City of Ladies tapestries. So we know that the interest in women was um, in the forefront of her education. Before her mother died, um, some of her mother's authors actually dedicated works to Claude, getting her ready to take on her mother's role. Um, and one of these was Jean Marot, for example. Clément Marot dedicated probably his very first work to Claude. And another one, uh, another author was Germain de Brie, who became um, Claude's secretary. And he was a correspondent of Erasmus. Now, in addition to that... Claude grew up in the castle of Blois, which her mother and her father had renovated entirely. And so she had an extraordinary dynastic castle. Her sister, Renée, um, when Claude was 10, was baptized in a cradle made by Domenico da Cortona. So someone who would become um, an important protagonist in the building of the castle of Chambord. Claude actually had art and culture ingrained in her persona. 
How wonderful. I was actually at Blois earlier this year and it's um, magnificent, absolutely magnificent. So you've mm -hmm. mentioned that, of course, Claude's mother prepared her to be a woman that wielded significant mm -hmm. power. So how did her marriage to Francis I come about? Well, against her mother's will, actually. Right. <laughs> so we're in the land of Salic law. Claude actually would have been queen like Elizabeth I if she hadn't been born in the, the country of Salic law. Her marriage was the result of a political tug of war between her father, who was actually a very attentive father who took her hunting often, um, but who, among other things, he wanted her state of the, the duchy of Brittany from her mother and then from herself. But when she was two years old, she was engaged to Charles of Austria, so the future Charles V. And her mother, for the rest of her life, wanted her to actually marry the future Charles V, who was of equal status to her. However, the heir to the throne in France, the Dauphin, was Francis I. And in 1506, Louis, so Claude's father, imposed the marriage with a French candidate rather than Charles of Austria. So this was um, slightly problematic for Claude in the sense that Francis was a womanizer, and it's um, it's been argued that he actually had a an illegitimate son prior to their marriage. He remained a notorious womanizer for the rest of his life. But simultaneously, I think that we can consider that Francois truly respected Claude. She was the daughter of a king and a queen, the only, in fact, queen of France who had a, a king and a queen of France as her parents, her status was extraordinary, and she mustered respect even from her unfaithful husband. Yes, and you've spoken about the fact that, of course, Anne of Brittany, Claude's mother, was was very attentive when it came to her education and upbringing. Do we know very much about their, their personal relationship? Like, were they close? And in what ways do you think that her mother influenced her? Well, so I'm going to go back to another one of your podcasts. Yes. Exactly. Um, your podcast with Tracy Borman, talking about the relationship between Anne Boleyn and Elizabeth I. And the fact that actually early modern motherhood is very different from the motherhood that we're familiar with. And a mother doesn't actually have to be present. She isn't, in fact, present all the time um, at a royal court. Anne looked after her daughter very, very closely. This we know through a series of letters. Um, people were constantly informing her about her daughter. However, the people who were closest to her daughter were the governesses that I mentioned previously, her chambermaid. When Claude became queen, one of her first acts was actually to make gifts to her chambermaid, one of the people who remained close to her for the rest of her life. Okay, that said, it is Anne who chose her name. Um, Claude was an unusual name, and Anne went on a pilgrimage after Claude was born. She had had other children and miscarriages, and no one had survived. So this was a great event when Claude was born. She um, wrote to Madame de Tournon to um, look after Claude in 1502 because of the plague. Uh, she received letters from her financier, Jacques de Bonne, telling her about the health of Claude. She followed her very closely. And in fact, the very first image that we have of Claude was made when she was three years old, no doubt. And she's in the arms of her mother. 
It's actually a manuscript showing us Petrarch's Remedies for Fortune, Foul and Fair, a book that later Catherine of Aragon would own. And in fact, reason is explaining to Louis XII that he must accept, actually, the, in, in the long run, it's the marriage with Francis I. And Claude is there protecting her daughter, which she would do for the rest of her life. She, in 1513, so the year before, she died at the beginning of um, 1514, and that year she saw that after the defeat of the English, Claude received the admiral's costume, his clothes, as a sign that she would be the next Duchess of Brittany. And she is referred to as the Duchess of Brittany, actually before her mother actually dies. Anne bequeathed to everything Claude. Interestingly, her testament has disappeared. But we know that she gave everything that she had to Claude. That meant the Duchy of Brittany. She had an extraordinary art collection, which Claude received. And I think most important of all, she bequeathed a good portion of her household to Claude. So Claude's master of the household, um, Jean de Saint-Amadour, knew exactly what he was doing. Her grand squire, Louis de Hongest, came from her mother, and he would be an ambassador for Claude. And first and foremost, though, Anne bequeathed to Claude and René, she made Michel de Saubonne, Madame de Soubise, the governess of René, and she would remain by both of the women's side as much as she could. We'll see that she got into trouble and was removed from the court. But Claude came to power with an extraordinary household backing her. And there were a lot of Bretons actually in that household. So let's talk a little bit about Claude's marriage to Francis then. So that she, she marries Francis and she, of course, gets the formidable Louise of Savoy as mother-in-law. And her <laughs> sister-in-law is Marguerite de Navarro, Angoulême, or she's known by many names. So what was her relationship like with these other two quite formidable women? I mean, I think, first of all, what historians haven't recognized is that Claude had an extraordinary sense of self. Okay. And there is absolutely no doubt that Louise de Savoie took power. She usurped power from Claude, actually. She was older. She was very well trained. Her mother knew it. She knew she could see the writing on the wall. She knew what was coming. And when she died, manuscript campaign was launched. We have 40 different manuscripts, all glorifying the funeral of Anne of Brittany and foregrounding Claude and René and Madame de Soubise. So there's no doubt that Louise lorded it over Claude and to some extent her son, the king. She was a formidable, extremely capable political figure. But what historians haven't recognized is that despite that, Claude's visibility remained extremely high. And I think that Louise had to rely on Claude's image to improve her own public image. Okay. In fact, the queen and the mother of the king appeared constantly together in royal pageantry and simply at court. And every time that they're mentioned, of course, it's in the order of precedence, the queen, Claude, and the mother of the king, Louise. Now, I also think that there was a counterbalance 
between the power of Louise and the usurping of the power of Claude. And I think that the woman who counterbalanced that was Anne de France, who had been regent previously, and she was an ally of Anne of Brittany's in the end. And she was, Anne of Brittany made her the godmother to René. And I think that she may have been the godmother to Claude. We don't actually know who her godparents were. Um, but she was there also to help bolster Claude in front of the force of Louise de Savoie. Now, I separate out the case of Louise and Marguerite very much, because I think that whereas Claude and Louise always appeared together and their courts were certainly complementary. I think that there, there was always antagonism. In fact, Branton says that Louise pushed Claude around, and I think that that was definitely the case. But Marguerite de Navarre, the actually then Marguerite d'Alençon, was a very different case. And I think that particularly through a, an interest in religious reform, which began with Claude, actually, I think. It was it was shared to a certain extent by everybody in the royal family. But I think that Claude was actually the motor behind this. And she and Marguerite developed, I think, a very close relationship. We know that Marguerite mourned Claude's death. And Claude's death was followed by the death of her second daughter, at the age of six, and Marguerite actually wrote a poem to this daughter, Charlotte, a very important work, a literary work of hers. And I, they, they actually shared, the two of them, a relationship with Jacques Lefebvre d'État and Guillaume Brissonnet. That's absolutely fascinating. And, and I'd love to hear just a little bit more about Claude the Queen. I think we often... We often hear, of course, that she had many children and was pregnant almost constantly, but I want to hear more about what she was like as queen. So I think, first of all, in relation to she, so she died at the age of 24, she had had seven children, so that was not good for her constitution, obviously. Um, but I think everybody forgets the prestige of fertility. She came from a line of women who had had problems giving birth, and Claude had seven children, three male children, so that she absolutely assured the royal succession, and four daughters as well. Okay, now she was in general at the center of spectacular pageantry, despite her pregnancies. And she's been presented as someone who never did anything. She was actually constantly on the road, even during her pregnancies. And I'll give you a good example of that in a minute. But her first participation in royal entry was in Lyon in 1515, when her consort, King Francis I, was headed to Milan to take back the duchy that her father, Louis XII, had bequeathed to her. So she and her sister, Renée, are the foremost protagonists in the royal entry in Lyon, that from the start. Okay, then she herself, so King Francis I made a royal entry into Paris in 1515 that was very quick. Claude's royal entry took place in 1517, and they had lots of time to prepare this entry, which was truly very grandiose. It followed her coronation at the church, uh, the monastery of Saint-Denis, where she was able to kneel at the tomb that her mother had made for her first husband, King Charles VIII. So all of these are signs of the prestige that followed her, actually, wherever she went. 
Okay, even Louise de Savoie organized a royal entry for Claude into Cognac, and I think that she was actually trying to whitewash her image to have the prestige of Claude sort of move over on to her. This was a carnival in 1520, and at that time they were preparing the Field of the Cloth of Gold, which took place in June of the same year. And it was actually organized in function of the pregnancy of Claude. She was seven months pregnant or almost at the time of the Field of the Cloth of Gold. And she gave birth to her daughter, Marguerite, a little bit more than two months after the encounter. So if you look at the famous Hampton Court painting, it shows Claude and Catherine of Aragon presiding over the jousting in the distance, which they did. Now, by then, Claude and the English court had exchanged gifts around the engagement of the Dauphin Francois to Mary Tudor. And Claude had been put officially in charge of negotiating that engagement. So here is where your Anne Boleyn begins to come in to our picture of Claude, because she was one of one of Claude's ladies-in-waiting and would later enter Catherine's household, of course. So in, in thinking a little bit more about her ladies-in-waiting, yes, Anne Boleyn was, was one of Claude's ladies. And as you've been speaking, I'm just thinking about all the ways in which Anne was influenced by Claude. That's oh. all, almost um, overshadowed by Marguerite d'Angoulême and, and Margaret of Austria. But I can, I can see so many ways that she was definitely influenced by Claude. But let's talk about some of those other women in her household. You mentioned one earlier, but I'd love to hear more about that. Let me finish with Anne Boleyn, yes, first of all. Do. However, okay, because we actually have more information than we generally recognize on the relationship between Anne Boleyn and the French court. So Madame de Soubise was disgraced by Louise and Francois and sent away from the French court. And I think that it was in compensation for that, that Francois put Claude officially in charge of the engagement and negotiations that were going to take place between Mary Tudor and her son, Francois. So these negotiations began, and the this was a moment of alliance be, between the Tudors and the Valois. And when her son, Henri, was born, actually, the person who um, stood in for Henry VIII at his baptism in May 1519 was Thomas Boleyn. And um, there was an exchange of gifts. Claude received a gold salt cellar from the British, and a couple of months later, she sent gifts to Catherine of, of Aragon and Mary Tudor as well. Okay, so she played a very important role there. And there you can already see Anne's father, Thomas Boleyn, present at the French court. And I, I listened also to your podcast on the Book of Hours of Thomas Cromwell. The only woman at the French court who is mentioned is Louise de Savoie. And I think that you need to begin looking more at Anne's relationship to Claude. I think that it is Claude actually who colored her reformist view to the greatest extent. Actually, one more thing, however, on just the importance of Anne Boleyn's stay at the French court. Um, We have a letter from René, much later in her life, Mm -hmm. to Nicholas Throckmorton. And she talks to the English ambassador about her affection for Elizabeth because of her friendship with her mother, Anne Boleyn, while she was a lady at Claude's court. So I think that's a very, very important link. 
Okay, Claude and René. And of course, René, she leaned towards Protestantism, and she lived in the age of Elizabeth, and they probably had quite similar religious points of view. But let me go on to other ladies-in-waiting. Those couple of very, very interesting ladies-in-waiting who haven't actually even been recognized are um, Anne and Madeleine de la Tour d'Auvergne. So Madeleine and Anne both entered Claude's service in 1509 when she was still a child. And they remained in her court. In fact, Madeleine was, um, when Federico Gonzaga goes to the French court, he talks about the ladies-in-waiting of Claude, and he mentions the fact that Madeleine de la Tour d'Auvergne often eats at the table of Claude. So they were very good companions, in fact. Now, Madeleine de la Tour d'Auvergne is the mother of Catherine de' Medici. So this is extremely important. And her sister, okay, Anne, who outlives Madeleine, is going to bequeath their possessions to Catherine de' Medici. So they're extremely important to Catherine de' Medici's roots, in fact. And when, so Madeleine is going to be married. Actually, Federico Gonzaga considered marrying her, but she's going to be married to Lorenzo de' Medici, so the father of Catherine de' Medici. And the marriage is actually coupled with the baptism of the Dauphin in Amboise. And um, some of the most spectacular events ever organized at the French court took place then for this baptism and marriage that had been coupled together. So when Madeleine was taken to be married, Claude followed directly behind her. And then, of course, Madeleine didn't survive the following year, the birth of Catherine de Medici. We'll come back to that. Another person that's very interesting is Anne de Graville. I know that you've had a podcast. Yes, it's fascinating. Elizabeth Lestrange, devoted to Anne de Graville. And I don't think, actually, that Anne de Graville was a lady-in-waiting to Claude. Um, simply because she doesn't appear anywhere on any rolls or there are no traces of that relationship within the court. However, their contact is um, extremely clear thanks to the translation that Anne de Graville made for Claude and thanks to the dedication page where she is offering her the, the translation that she did of Boccaccio's Tezeida, which she rewrote in a feminine voice for Claude. And she shows herself in front of Claude, surrounded by her ladies-in-waiting, who are actually conversing, you know, so that you can see the quality of the education of all of these ladies at court. Um, and she calls her my queen, my sovereign lady, actually. Um, and then I'd like to mention just one other lady-in-waiting, who was actually Claude's lady of honor. And this was Françoise de Foix, Françoise de Chateaubriand. So the person who became the first official mistress of um, Francis I. And this was obviously very problematic for Claude. I think that was a way of sort of infiltrating her court because the ladies-in-waiting were so close to the queen. But she was woman of great education, she too. And she originally was um, from the family of Anne of Brittany. And then she took the, took on this very ambiguous position um, within Claude's court. So that's another thing that could undermine her reign to some extent. So do you think that appointment was Francis's idea, that one? Well, 
Well, I mean, he, he surely he was attracted to her. Yes. Um, but and I've been interested by the fact that she didn't survive actually the um, death of Claude Francis's captivity. Uh -huh. um, he then moves on when. Brittany is no longer very important. She is no longer his official mistress, you know. So there are always political implications in all of these things. And I was fascinated to hear you talk about Claude's religious beliefs and her role mm -hmm. as an active promoter of reform. Do you, do you want to just go into that a little bit more? Because as you say, I think it's always attributed more to Marguerite d'Angoulême or to other people around Claude. Right. But I think it's actually because... We don't know that much about the early years of Marguerite d'Angoulême, Marguerite de Navarre. And I think that the, by focusing on Claude, we get closer to what was actually happening, you know, very specifically at the court. Now, I think that one of the things that we need to take into account is the fact that her mother already set Claude and René down this path. Louis XII and Anne of Brittany actually furthered the reform that was undertaken at the monastery of Saint-Germain-des-Prés by Lefebvre d'Etape and Guillaume Brissonnet. Okay, so they were already in the picture before Anne died. And um, I think that the choice of Madame de Soubise as the governess of René and the protector of both of Anne's daughters, um, she is considered to have become a Protestant. So um, that also was a very significant choice. She had links to this humanist evangelical circle. Now, Claude herself, we know, was in contact. Her almoner, Louis Chantreau, translated a work that came from Milan. She was in contact with the reform movement in Milan that was led by a woman, Archangela Panigarola, and the link to the French court at that point were the Brissonnet brothers, but particularly Denis Brissonnet, the brother of Marguerite. And then, in addition to the Milanese link, um, Denis Brissonnet was also present very much in Rome. And there was a very tight link between, actually, um, Anna Brittany already had close ties to Rome. She was the maker of bishops. And she was in contact with Leo the 10th prior to her death. He created a confraternity in the Breton, Breton church in Rome for her. And um, he gave privileges to Anne and Claude and 50 of their gentlemen and ladies in 1513, including her governess, Madame d'Assigny, and her daughter, Marie d'Assigny. So you can already see this, this link to the Pope. And it's going to be also um, her almoner is in contact with Egidio da Viterbo, who is the most important Romer of the Augustinian order in Rome. Okay, so that's another very important link. And then finally, we have we have proof, actually, of the connection between the Brissonnet and the papal court through Leo X, but also through his cousin, Giulio de' Medici. And a series of works were commissioned by Giulio de' Medici and Leo X, on the one hand, for the French court, including a fantastic painting by Raphael for Claude. And eventually, even the Venetians are going to be involved in this reform movement in, in Rome. And Claude is going to receive on the part of the Venetian Senate a visitation that was painted by um, Sebastiano del Piombo, who was also in contact with the reformist movement. So we have all sorts of proof that um, she had links, very important links, through 
cardinals, bishops, and popes to reformist movements in Italy. Okay, and then just one last thing, the pope that I consider to be the most significant reforming pope of the 16th century is Adrian VI. And before he left to assume his papacy in Rome, he sent a letter to Claude, and he said that he was sorry that he wasn't able to visit her, but that Rome was calling him. So that's a sign, too, of her contact with the reform, reform within the church. What wonderful insights. And you've given me so many names. I'm trying to scribble down so I can look everyone up. <laughs> Thank you. And, and so I have a final question for you. It, it's clear that Claude was very well respected and she was very young when she died, 24, as you, as you said. But how was she viewed by the people around her and how did her death affect, affect everyone? Well, although she isn't very, very well known today, she's still called the good Queen Claude, okay? And she's had that title ever since her own lifetime. Now, I spoke with a male colleague not too long ago who suggested that the reason that she had this positive image was that she didn't really wield power. But I don't think that that's the case. I think that's wrong. And if you look carefully, you discover that she actually was in contact with women at Italian courts. There's a really interesting exchange of gloves between Isabella d'Este and the intermediary is Federico Gonzaga and he takes gloves to Claude, but they're too big. So he has to send them back. This is in 1517 and in 1521, they're still exchanging gloves. The remarkable Lucrezia Borgia, so Duchess of Ferrara. Actually, when Claude gave birth to a Dauphin, it was an extraordinary event for all of Europe. And Lucrezia Borgia took one of her jewels and had it transformed and sent it to Claude in honor of this great moment of her fertility. And it's particularly interesting because René would then marry the son of Lucrezia Borgia. Yeah. So we've constantly got these links between the different courts. Now, the most significant, however, ambassadorial testimony that we have comes from the Venetian ambassadors, as is often the case. And it's an interesting link, actually, between England, France, and Venice, because the ambassador in question was Sebastiano Giustinian, who was an ambassador at the English court, but his brother was ambassador at the French court. So he stopped off to see his brother in France on his way back to Venice in 1519. And then he went on to Venice and he gave a report, an official report, to the Senate. And this is his statement. The king and the duchess's mother were more unpopular all over France than words could express. The queen of France is so universally loved that it is impossible to describe or imagine a greater affection. So I think that we need to take that as a sign of her discreet power. I think she actually, because her um, relationship with um, Louise de Savoie was very complex, she learned to be a fantastic dissimilator. Very little is actually written. And you can read between the lines the way that she's speaking to the ambassadors and messages are going back and forth. Now, as I mentioned previously, her primer Actually, it showed her the Virgin Mary as mediator who was descending into limbo to save the souls, repentant souls. And that was, that was an image for Claude to absorb. And I'm convinced that she absolutely did absorb that image, that she was a mediator and her people recognized her, her capacity to mediate. We know that in the county of Blois, where she wielded perhaps the most direct authority, she actually created, or, or they, they say she repaired the convent of the Augustinian canonesses, and they looked after the sick and the needy. 
And in 1523, so just the year before her death, she actually built a church and a cemetery in the suburbs to take care of those who died of the plague. So we can see her intervening very concretely as a mediator for her people. And the result is that when she died, she was, I mean, some miracles were actually attributed to her. She was considered to be a very great loss for the, the people of France. Uh, and there are a lot of very interesting epitaphs. Guillaume-Michel de Tourl was one of the writers who wrote an epitaph, and he claimed that he himself was deeply affected by her death. And he claimed that Loire River actually was flooded with the tears of the people of Tourl, Amboise, and Blois over the death of Claude. That is incredibly touching, isn't it? What a mm, fascinating yeah. woman and such a yeah. brief life, but obviously managed to do so much in that time. This has been such an interesting discussion. And I feel like, you know, you've given us so much food for thought and so many wonderful insights. Are there any English biographies of Claude? Um, no. That's a job for you. Well, actually, I was I was going to set myself to that. Yeah. But then this um, Royal Studies Network colloquium is... The, the conference series has come forth and I'm going to be concentrating that, but may get a book on Claude in English out of that. Oh, that would be absolutely wonderful. And there's just one final question that I like to ask my guests, and that's mm. for a Tudor takeaway, or it can be a 16th century takeaway. So something mm. for our listeners to go off and explore after the episode. Well, um, I have absolutely no hesitation. I did mention Claude's Book of Hours, but there's an extraordinary prayer book that was made for Claude that was her most significant private possession. It is a girdle book that she wore um, around her waist, and it can fit into the palm of your hand. It's very tiny. It's exquisitely beautiful, and you can look at it online. So I recommend to everybody that you go look at, um, you, you go to the website of the Morgan Library and Museum, and you tap in Prayer Book of Claude, and you'll actually get a presentation of this by the curator, Roger Week. But you can also um, scroll through every single page of this tiny, tiny prayer book. And I think that by doing so, you can actually, you, you can watch the progression of religious ideas that go, you start in the dark and you move towards the light. There's an underlying Neoplatonic evangelical discourse in this prayer book that was made no later than 1518. And I think that you can actually see the formation of the mind of someone like Anne Boleyn, the great reformer. What a wonderful takeaway. And once again, thank you so much for taking the time to come onto the podcast and chat with us. Thank you, Natalie. Your podcast series is truly great. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. Mm -hmm.